Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello, and uh, welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and today I have a special guest joining me, Trent Horn. Trent uh, is an apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers, an apostolate that is dedicated to explaining and defending the Catholic faith. He specializes in teaching Catholics how to graciously defend their faith with sound arguments and persuasive communication techniques. Trent earned a graduate degree in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville and is currently pursuing a graduate degree in philosophy from Holy Apostles College. He is a regular guest in the radio program Catholic Answers Live, a lecturer who speaks across the country on issues related to the Catholic faith and the author of dozens of articles, booklets, and books about apologetics. He currently lives with his wife and son in San Diego. Trent, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a a pleasure to have you here. Um, For anyone who's listening in, uh, we are actually recording this show live. Now, I'm going to be interacting with uh, Trent for about half an hour, and then I'm going to open it up to callers. Uh, If there are no callers or if there's no one who has a, a pressing question for Trent, then I'll just continue on with my questions. So if you have a question for Trent, you can call in at 646 668-8597. Now, uh, today we're going to talk about a couple of things. Uh, I want to talk about Trent's book, Persuasive Pro-Life, which I think uh, you released that last year, right? Yeah. Well, actually, it's probably been about three years. I believe that book was published in 2014. It was my second book. Oh, okay. Uh, Time has evidently passed a little bit more quickly than uh, than I thought. Yeah, and then after we discuss your book, we'll uh, talk about uh, your recent debate at Stanford University with David Boonin. So let's go ahead and begin by talking about your book, uh, Persuasive Pro-Life. Now, uh, the first thing that I noticed as I was reading through your book is that, uh, you know, you do source your claims, but uh, you use endnotes as opposed to footnotes. Uh, Hasn't the Catholic Church uh, declared uh, endnotes to be anathema yet? Uh, The question about endnotes falls in the realm of theological speculation. Uh, the church has not oh. issued an infallible statement yet on it. So, Okay, maybe you can put together your own uh, Council of Trent and uh, talk, get the Catholic Church talking about that. <laughs> right righto, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, actually, I, I, when I read 
some, I, I think footnotes are, are fine and, um, and they can be nice if you just have a citation. But when I read, I tend to find them a little bit distracting. Uh, and in my book, sometimes I include lengthy supplements to the material in the end notes. And I think that would be distracting in a main text. Mm. So uh, that's why I, I used uh, that. And in, in all my books, I use end notes rather than footnotes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and of course, I'm just poking fun, but I understand that uh, often, uh, often it's also up to, it's just up to the, uh, the publisher whether or not you use sure. endnotes or footnotes. So sometimes the author doesn't yeah, even have a, right. a choice. But um, yeah. yeah, so, okay, so now uh, your, your book, um, it, was it inspired by JFA or is it the other way around? Was JFA inspired by, by your uh, material? Well, I learned uh, pro-life apologetic, uh, well, one, I think by studying people like Greg Kokel and Scott Klusendorf, mm-hmm. uh, and then also putting that into practice I, I, I did, you know, gave talks, and this would have been back in 2000. Between, uh, let's see, just going back, I filmed a you know, pro-life documentary that's been lost to the sands of time in 2007 and 2008. Uh, so during college in that time, I was in a Students for Life organization, studied a lot of this material. Then after college in 2009, 2010 uh, is when I worked with Justice for All, traveled with them, really got a lot of good practice and field research uh, going to university campuses for two years. And so from that study and those experiences, that's really where Persuasive Pro-Life came from because I, I just wanted the, the most comprehensive lay treatment of the subject available for people to condense what I had learned in all those years of study and practice uh, into one volume. Okay. Uh, really, the first thing that I noticed as I was reading through is that it's it's very much uh, similar to the method that Justice for All uses. Uh, I'm I myself uh, am a speaker and mentor uh, for Justice for All, and uh, I think you had probably moved on from there before I started going through the program. Mm-hmm. But I I really noticed that that this book is is pretty much the Justice for All seminar in print. <laughs> I think you could you could say that at least the skeleton follows the seminar a lot, and um, and in the introduction and in my acknowledgments. Uh, in fact, I dedicated that book to three people who really motivated and mentored me as a pro-life advocate. One of them being Steve mm-hmm. Wagner, who's uh, now the executive director of Justice for All. Back when he was he was just actually when I was there, he he was a liaison kind of from Stand to Reason, and then when I worked there, he was the director of training, but. I thought the approach they had was, was great, and I just wanted people to learn from it. But also what I thought was neat was that the book, even though it follows the training, I tried to include a lot of material in there that you would really only learn once you had done a training and then been out in conversations for quite a while to get some of the stuff you wouldn't get just in a JFA seminar. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you know I think the supplemental material that you don't learn at the JFA seminar uh, is excellent also. Uh, your, your book has helped me to – uh, kind of uh, organize my own thoughts on on certain issues, and so whenever mm-hmm. I do a, a JFA seminar, I always, uh, I, in fact, I always um, pr- kind of promote your book as you know, if, if you ever want a refresher on the seminar, or if you if you just want more information on the stuff that we've talked about here and supplemental material, I I, I point them to your book. Uh, does, Thank you very much. Really fantastic. Yeah. Um, now. You talk often in your book about being an ambassador. So what is it that you mean when you say that pro-life people are ambassadors? Well, an ambassador is someone who represents, you know, a sovereign nation to others. So, you know, ambassador, you know, the United States has ambassadors to many different countries. And sometimes 
a lot of times it's, you know, kind of just a lot of formalities and day-to-day international dealings, nothing too heavy. But, you know, every now and then an ambassador is called out to deal with a kind of diplomatic crisis. Uh, You know, there's kind of a rift between two nations, not one where, you know, the nuclear warheads are going to be launched, but, you know, one where things have to be smoothed over. Um, An example, I forget if I cite this in the book or not, I remember many years ago there was an incident where a U.S. submarine was acting recklessly and it sank a Japanese fishing vessel with a bunch of students on it, and then a lot of the students were killed. And so I remember watching this documentary about being an ambassador and how the the, Jap- the American ambassador to Japan you know, has to go and deal with the anger and the, the heartbreak from these families, and they're, they're lobbying this at him. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like, well, that's not really fair. He, he didn't do this, but that's his right. job as an ambassador. He has to represent the country and, and make these amends. So, so mm-hmm. to draw from that as a pro-life ambassador, you know, you may not have been mean or an insensitive pro-life person to others, but when you are a pro-life ambassador, you represent the pro-life community, and people bring those misunderstandings, those hurt feelings from past conversations to your conversations, and so you have to be this kind of diplomatic ambassador working through bringing about this kind of reconciliation amongst these worldviews. Mm. Yeah, that's um, that's a great way of looking at it, and I think that if pro-life people kind of keep it in their minds that we are ambassadors for the pro-life position, uh, it will lead to to a lot less uh, get, getting angry, a lot less uh, name calling. Um, that that sometimes comes from a well-meaning pro-life person that it, that ends up not being so helpful. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah. Now you, you talk about this a little bit in your book, but for those who haven't read, um, could you? kind of describe your uh, journey to becoming a pro-life activist a bit? Sure. Uh, I remember this, a lot of this started in high school uh, through a girl who invited me to prom. Uh, I met her father, who was the, uh, the president of a right to life organization and our the state right to life organization. And he began my mentoring process and I volunteered for that organization. And in college, I joined the students for life and, uh, then at one point, Justice for All visited my campus, and, you know, I got kind of hooked. I was at the exhibit all day, uh, late to my classes, and uh, I ended up, when I heard they were going to California next, I, you know, a bunch of us from the club got together, made a road trip, and we started following them, going to these exhibits. And after a while, I was given a full-time position at the State Right to Life organization, but I felt like the work I was doing, I wanted to make a bigger impact, and so I left them on good terms and join justice for all for a two-year mission and so i did that and uh, raised my own funds to do that for two years and i learned a lot and have been really able to apply it uh, in my future work now uh, where i still do a lot of pro-life apologetics just in a, a different venue you kind of divide your your book into a few different sections where you talk about understanding the abortion debate and then if you divided into the various people that you that you'll often encounter the, the people that you encounter here and talk about in your book did it kind of come about based on mostly college outreaches or have you done uh, pro-life work at uh, at abortion clinics with sidewalk counseling or, or where do you often encounter these different kinds of people i think most of my experience came from university environments uh also um a little bit of that came from as i was writing the book I was working, I began uh, working at Catholic Answers, and I started doing these radio shows at Catholic Answers. They were very new at the time, 
uh, the style being we asked people who weren't Catholic to call in and we would put these um, different kinds of shows. Like we would say, you know, if you're an atheist, call the talk to Trent. If you're pro-choice, call the talk to him. So some of the first shows we did were called, you know, why are you pro-choice? And so some of those people also come from those conversations uh, as well. So, okay. um, and so but, but I'd say a lot of it from the, the university setting. And, you know, just, just learning from there. Now, I say in the book, though, these types of people, they're not meant to be like demographic, age, race, religion. It's more right. like, you know, kinds of arguments people will make. And, of course, many people you meet will be kind of mixtures of these different sorts of arguments. But some come out more predominantly than others. So the – well, the part two of your book is where you start talking about the first sets of people. You have uh, the pragmatists, the tolerant, and the distractors which are basically people who avoid the main issue. And so I've, I've often heard that sometimes when someone is, is trying to focus on an off-topic discussion, like, for example, if they're a pragmatist and uh, they, they're really kind of zeroing in like a laser beam on one issue in particular, for example, poverty, it, it might be because of some kind of, uh, some kind of like past event that occurred in their life. Is that something that, that we, we take into account when we have these discussions, or do we just kind of focus on responding to their concerns? What, what's kind of the, the best way to respond to somebody like that? Well, I, I think it's important just to understand the people we talk to are people. So they'll form their worldview in a variety of ways. Uh, sometimes it will be from a, a personal experience. That could even be a traumatic experience. For other people, they'll simply have thought of an idea, like they may just be concerned about poverty and believe abortion is the solution because they have seen poverty in movie and television and read internet articles about it, and they think abortion is a good solution to this. So for some people, it'll be a bit more cerebral. For others, they, you know, they may have endured that poverty in a personal way. And so what we have to do is just to gauge a person. For example, if someone's being kind of emotional about an issue, sometimes that's a tell or a sign that they have had a personal, uh, inter- you know, of a personal relation uh, with the subject that's at hand. So we have to just keep that in mind when we're engaging in conversations. Yeah, especially uh, people like uh, the tolerant or the uh, the pragmatists who argue from practical solutions, and the distractors who talk about things like breast cancer, um, illegal abortions being harmful to women, those kinds of things, which are important discussions in and of themselves, but kind of detract from the main issue. I, I think of the three, the tolerant are probably in a way, at least for me, maybe uh, maybe anyone who's listening might have a different experience, but at least for me, I think the tolerant is a little bit more, I guess a little more of a frustration to deal with because they know or they recognize that something is wrong, but they don't they don't kind of feel any sort of pull or motivation to, to try and right these wrongs. And so what would you find if someone, for example, says, I believe abortion is wrong, but I can't force my view on other people. What do you, what would you say is probably, or at least that you found is the best way or one of the best ways to not only show them that their view is incoherent, but also to try and get them motivated to, to do good on, on a moral issue. Right. And so what I try to do here, and I agree with you, sometimes it's very difficult to speak to someone, these to- the tolerant types who uh, sometimes, especially those who have more of a pretentious attitude, they can think that, well, I've discovered the third solution to this problem, and I'm better than all these people who argue about it, because I agree it's wrong. But I, because some of these people will say that in a kind of 
almost smug way, well, I'm pro-life and pro-choice, as if they've discovered this amazing novel solution to the problem nobody's thought of. But, it's, of course, it's incoherent. Uh, there are some evils we tolerate for sure. Uh, you know, right. when I listen to a crying baby on an airplane, and especially as a father who has children, I'm much more sympathetic now than I was before yeah. I had children. But for anybody, when you hear that, you tolerate it. What does that mean? Well, tolerance doesn't mean you, you celebrate. It doesn't mean you're like, this is great. This is amazing. I'm in favor of this. Tolerance, you, you don't even like it. To toler- mm-hmm. In order to tolerate something, at some level, you have to dislike it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tolerance. It would be acceptance. To tolerate something means you just allow it to exist. That's what tolerate means. Usually, it's something that, that bothers you, but you let it exist. And so there are evils out there uh, of, of, a, of a minor type that we, we, tol- you know, we tolerate rude people. Uh, we tolerate long waits at the DMV. We let them exist even though they bother us. But if there's e- right. grave evils, grave injustices, they can't be tolerated. So mm. what I might say, like, I tolerate a screaming baby on an airplane, but I to- tolerate somebody molesting a baby or, or killing a baby. Uh, so right. uh, what I'll say to the person is, look, you don't like abortion. Why don't you like it? What is it specifically about abortion you don't like? And then I'll try to just use some counterexamples or analogies. I might say, you know, imagine it was it's 80 years ago, okay, and there are five-year-olds who work in coal mines, child labor. Now, I don't like child labor, but I can't tell a family they're wrong for sending their child to work. What if, you know, and then the pragmatist sneaks in here, too. What if they have to do that or they can't put food on the table? You know, what should we do in that case? Well, we would say, you know, with child abuse, child labor, things like that, you know, we don't tolerate these grave evils committed against children. And then that's the key that if the unborn are children, game, set, match, we're back on the main issue. Right. Um, I do have uh, a caller here. We'll get to the caller in uh, just a few minutes. So let's jump ahead to the next part of your book, part three, people who deny that the unborn matter. Now, you make a distinction between the skeptics and the disqualifiers. The skeptics being people who specifically deny that we can know when life begins biologically and the disqualifiers, which claim that even though the unborn, even though we know biologically, scientifically that the unborn are human, that they're not persons. Um, How often do you encounter people who actually are skeptical of the biological or embryological uh, evidence that human life begins at fertilization? You know, it's, it's not, uh, it's infrequent among the general population but there's a higher frequency among college students, which is mm-hmm. ironic because you would think college students who've taken basic biology classes would know right. this one. So it's, it's, it's very counterintuitive. I remember at two different debates in California at universities, a student in the audience during the Q&A session said, it wasn't even really a question. It was more they were trying to just get me. They said that I failed to make my case because I didn't even prove the unborn were alive. I just, mm-hmm. I was just dumbfounded. And so what I ask them when that happens is, well, you're saying the unborn aren't aren't alive. What does abortion do to a fetus? What does it do to the fetus? And they didn't want to say it killed it because that means it has to be alive first. They said, well, it makes it go away. And I said, where? Cleveland? And the audience responded, and my debate opponent uh, said, dude, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't think it's a person, but – uh, Mr. Horn's obviously right. It's alive. It has human DNA. It's a human organism. I mean, that fact, I, what I try to say to them is I try to get them to define their terms. Well, what do you yeah. mean by human? And I think a lot of times they say it's not human 
they really mean the philosophy. That's what they really mean. And then I just try to show the basic facts. Sometimes I ask them to define the term embryo or fetus. And it's impossible to define that term among humans without talking about stages of development in the life of an organism. So those are some ways I go about it in those conversations, which can be entertaining and frustrating at the same time. Right. Yeah. Cause you, you talk about this in your book too. And I do encounter people like this. Well, they'll, they'll they, they don't just say fetus, but they like, they, they have invective on the word itself. So it's like, it's not a human, it's a fetus. It's almost like they're kind of spitting venom out when they, when they use that word. And yeah, yeah I, I think just a good follow-up question is, okay, if the fetus isn't a human, then what is it? Because, uh, you know, is, is it a potential human? If it's a potential human, it has to be an actual why. So what is it actually? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so then the disqualifiers are the people who accept the biological evidence for human life beginning and fertilization, but they deny that the unborn are persons. What would you say is probably the most common property that, that an abortion choice advocate will bring up to disqualify the unborn from personhood? And how would you respond to it? Um, the most common one, I, if I had to do just a statistical survey, it's probably the fact that they're not born yet. That's probably the number one thing, not in the world, not born. And usually that means either it's just the pure location or it's the fact of dependency that the, the child's just not viable. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's the number one I hear from people. It's just it's yeah. not viable. And for me, what I find funny about that is, um, one, viability, one, it's, it's not a sufficient condition for being a person. If by mm -hmm. viable you mean the ability to survive outside of a uterus, uh, because there's lots of animals that do that, you know, rats, pigeons, dogs, snakes, you know, they're, they're not persons just because they can do that. Uh, so I'd say, well, why is it, a, so I'd ask them, then why is it a necessary condition? Why does that matter? And make them, because I think a lot of people, and I talk about this in my book, it's just a circular argument. Well, you have to be viable because that's what it means to be a person. You have to survive on your own. Well, why do you have to survive on your own? Because that's what it means to be viable. And, you know, a fetus can't survive on its own. What does that mean? A newborn can't survive on its own. Well, someone can take care of it. It's just outside of the womb. So the circular argument is just a fetus isn't a person because it can't survive on its own. But can't survive on its own, that's the definition of a fetus. So the argument is just saying right. a fetus is not a person because it's a fetus. Mm. And so that just restates facts about the child, but doesn't tell us why those facts matter. So I remember once a woman talked to me about this on the radio, and I just put it to her very bluntly. I said, look, your argument is that the baby in the womb isn't a person because they're at their highest level of dependence. They're at their most needy stage of their life. And so it's okay to kill them at the most needy stage. And she said, well, it sounds bad when you put it that way. I said, yeah, but that, that, that's, that's the argument, essentially. So that, right. that can be another way to go about it as well. Yeah, um, that, yeah that's what I've heard from, from other pro-life people, too, is, uh, is once you kind of take the spin off of what they're saying, they'll, they'll often respond with, yeah, it sounds kind of bad when you, when you put it that way. I guess I kind of did say that. You put it that way. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and go to our, our caller. Caller, you are uh, live. Please uh, give us your name and then uh, give us your question for Trent. Hi there. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Jose Espinosa, and I'm calling here from the Southern California, Los Angeles area. So really quickly, my question is for you, Trent. Um, I'm a person uh, with a disability, and um, 
I have engaged conversations with students on a university environment, um, and um, there was actually a, a um, one-time experience that I have had. Uh, I had a woman who approached me doing a genocidal awareness project. For those who are not aware what the genocidal awareness project is, uh, a project uh, under the uh, Center for Biophilic Reform, which is another organization that travels to university campuses. And um, so essentially, uh, this particular person, she identified herself as a feminist, and uh, she actually stated that if she um, knew that her baby uh, uh, had a disability, that she would definitely go ahead and choose to abort her baby. So my question to you, Trent, is um, how can I um, how can I not uh, make the conversation in a way that I will take it personally or take it as an attack uh, due to my the value of my life because I definitely value my life as a disabled person, but you know. Knowing that yeah. other people, like uh, like this particular woman, you know, had a thought, uh, she apparently doesn't value even a person's disability, you know, so. Sure. And I, I think it's, it, it reminds me when I was uh, debating Dr. Malcolm Potts at the University of California in Berkeley, and a student asked him, you know, I know people who have Down syndrome, would you... Um, would you do, and he's done abortions before, would you abort a child because they have Down syndrome? And it was, it was so awkward for him. He like tried to have his cake and eat it too, saying, well, I support women in any choice they make, but, you know, I think we should respect and protect people with disabilities. And, uh, and it was just so awkward because, you know, if you believe in unlimited abortion, then you don't value human life. And, and really, if you don't value it before birth, for these various reasons, it's going to bleed over into afterbirth. And your perspective as someone from the disabled community, I think is a very important one uh, when people have these kinds of dialogues to, to talk about how, well, what makes us truly valuable to say that really what our value comes from, not what we can do, but from what we are. And if you're a religious person, if you're a Christian, what we are is we're a child made in the image and likeness of God. And that is where our value ultimately comes from. So I think it's important that if someone were to, to say something like that, you know, and many people say callous things about disabilities, things like that, just to, yeah, to not take it personally to say, wow, I'm at least blessed to know that I, I know the value I have and I understand disabilities or particular disabilities in a way this person doesn't understand. And, and I'm grateful that I'm not ignorant like this person is ignorant. And, and me, what I would do is I'd, Pray for that person, for their heart to be open, to better understand the value of humanity uh, apart from what we can do. Because if someone has that, if, they, if that's how they value things, and if they get sick, uh, when they start to become old and, and disabled themselves, there's going to be a lot of suffering there uh, because they don't understand the right sense of human value. So that's one way that, um, that I would go about it. And I would just encourage you to, to keep being that witness because people need to see that that, you know, people say that, oh, the disabled can never have a good life. We need abortion. That's so insensitive to those who, you know, it's always people who, who think they know better who want to try to snuff out the lives of those who really want to live. So uh, definitely still keeping that witness. And thank you for calling. 
No, I was saying last night I thank Trent Home for his uh, mm-hmm. uh, words of encouragement. And um, just uh, if you were to allow me uh, for another question, um, uh, what is your view on graphic imaging? Because uh, I tend to lean to favor with um, CBR than uh, Justice for All. Don't get me wrong, Justice for All is a good ministry organization, but I know that CBR definitely exposes the truth and uh, what's going on, uh, and and I participated in the genocide awareness project. So just wanted to sure. ask you about your view or your opinion be- between CBR and the contrast with just small. So. Yeah, I'd be happy to, and and then um, we'll probably have to move on to our next caller or the other segment here after this. But um, but thank you for the question. It's a good one. I talk about it briefly in my book. My view on graphic images is this, um, that they are not immoral in and of themselves to show graphic images of abortion. Uh, I believe that it's not immoral and there are many benefits to using them in different contexts. I use them predominantly on college campuses where you have very few children and many adults who need to see these things. Uh, but I'm open to other ways they might be used. Uh, and I'm open-minded about that. I think pro-lifers can have, can have reasonable disagreement about how graphic images are used and how effective they are. I personally think they're very effective, uh, but I try to keep them within a context. My, my preferred context of using them would probably be in front of abortion facilities uh, and university campuses, uh, you know, just for, for context purposes. Uh, but otherwise, I think that they're, they're definitely, that's not wrong to show the pictures, but pro-lifers can reasonably disagree about the best way to use them. And pro-lifers just need to keep having that conversation. But I have a personal view. It's funny. I'm not going to necessarily impose it on others about what's most practical, you see there. Um, but uh, we, we can have the reasonable disagreement. But I do think they should be used in some form. Okay. And another question, uh, a request um would it be possible if I can get Transform's uh, copy of this book, Persuasive for Life, any chance? Yeah, sure. Why don't you um, go to my website, trenthorn.com. There's a contact page there. Fill that out, and I should be able to get you at least an electronic copy of my book. So go to trenthorn.com and just hit the contact tab and, and shoot me a message. Awesome. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, and thank no. you for calling, uh, Jose. Okay, so just uh, just as a reminder, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, nothing. I, our caller has departed. But uh, you were saying? Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, just as a reminder for other listeners, if you'd like to call in and uh, ask Trent a question, the number to call is six four six 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 eight eight five nine seven. So, uh, getting back to your your book, then um, the other type of person who denies that the unborn matter that you talk about are the autonomous. And those are the people who argue that it doesn't matter whether or not the unborn is human. Abortion is permissible because women have a right to their bodies. Now, you make a, a distinction between two different types of bodily autonomy arguments. Could you kind of talk about the difference between those real quick? Yeah. In fact, this is a distinction that has survived into the JFA training curricula. This is something <laughs> I came up with. Uh, while I was on the staff, and actually, when I was on the staff at Justice for All, when we were when we were starting, uh, there was nothing about bodily rights uh, in the seminar at all. And I don't know if they still cover bodily rights. It's one thing that's hard with the seminar. I mean, I love the seminar; it's great. Uh, 
but there's only so much you can put into somebody's head in about eight hours. And I always think bodily right puts goes over, mm. goes over the top of everything they've learned. But I do think it, it's really important to learn because it, it's just such a common argument. Yeah, and uh, uh, re- regarding the uh, the JFA seminars, it really just kind of depends on the seminar. If there's if there's no time for it, they might uh, skip over it. But sometimes they uh, they'll go on, and it's the kind of thing where it's you know we've already given you a lot of information. It's it's okay if you if you check out for this next part because it's kind of philosophical <laughs> in nature. But uh, but yeah, so so they do cover it at a lot of seminars. It just kind of depends on what, oh, what the time looks like. Yeah. Good. I'm glad because I noticed that we would go out, we teach people everything up to sled and, you know, philosophy, show the unborn the person, stay on topic. But people would be unprepared when somebody says, I don't care. I know it's a baby. It's a person. Fine. I think a woman can do what she wants with her body. And some people will take kind of a a fast file approach to say, well, it can't be a part of her body, you know, because it's not her arm or leg. It's half the time it has different genitalia. And what the critic will say is, no, that's not what I mean. It's not a literal part, but because this human being is connected to her, she can do what she wants. So, in the, so what I said is we need to address this. And I noticed there's two distinct arguments. One is the street-level version. The other is the more academic. The street-level version says, doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want with my body because it's my body. That I call that the sovereign zone argument. It's just my body is like this sovereign zone. It's like my own little international waters. I can, if there's a baby in here, in my body, whatever's in here, I, I can dismember it. I can remove it. I can do what I want. It's my body. Uh, and, in, and in my book and in the training, we teach, well, that's a strong claim. And if you propose a counterexample, most people will see, well, no, you can't do whatever you want. I mean, could you take drugs to cause a child to be born with a severe disability? Uh, could you take a child out of the womb, operate on them, in an inc- you know, operate on them on a table, put them back in the womb, and then uh, dismember them then when you couldn't dismember them five minutes earlier? So things like that, this, you know, the sovereign zone. Then the more academic version is what I call right to refuse. It says, well, maybe you can't do whatever you want with your body, but you can choose to not let someone use your body as a form of life support. And so just as you don't have to donate a kidney or bone marrow to a dying person, a pregnant woman does not have to donate her body to an unborn child. Um, common, you know, that comes from Judith Jarvis Thompson, who we'll probably talk about later. Uh, and also it was featured prominently. It was the main argument, essentially, in my debate uh, with David Boonin, because he is a, probably the most prominent defender of this argument today. Um, but I, I believe it's important for pro-lifers to answer this, because it, it is a very common argument. Yeah. Now, uh, near the beginning of your book, in the Gracious Approach uh, chapter, you actually talk about five ambassador rules that each pro-life person should learn and follow. And two of those are to actually listen and use questions instead of statements. And I think this this kind of really well shows the necessity of these uh, ambassador rules, because if it sounds like a pro-choice person is saying, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, I think she has the right to do whatever she wants because it's just a part of her body. It's like having a tooth pulled. If they think she's making that kind of an argument, she might be making something different. And asking a clarifying question will be a good way to make sure you're not assuming she's making an argument she's not making. Right. Exactly. Bingo. So then your last section deals with people who have tough questions which of course is, is very important as well, because uh, often if a pro-life person isn't expecting these or isn't, I guess, kind of versed in the, uh, in what kind of hard questions people have, 
then they'll be taken by surprise and they're not going to know how to respond to these kinds of things. So you talk about like the concerned who are uh, people who are actually who are concerned about the uh, negative health effects that making abortion illegal will have on, on women. You talk about the conflicted people who use the hard cases, uh, the fighter who are who is more belligerent in trying to sway the public by exposing how bad pro-life people are, and then the religious, which are religious people who are actually on the uh, the abortion choice side of the aisle. Yeah. So when we talk about, uh, for example, the conflicted, the people who use the hard cases about abortion, what kind of what, what kind of hard cases are we, are we talking about here? The most common ones, I'd say, the two most common are going to be uh, what about in the case of rape and then what if a woman's life is in danger. These are people who seem to understand the unborn as a human being. They think the unborn shouldn't be killed just because they're unwanted. But they think that maybe in this certain circumstances, that everything's really terrible, abortion could be justified in those cases. And so what I show in the book is we need to answer these questions uh, with compassion and empathy but still keep our eye on the main principles, which is that the unborn are human. They must be treated humanely. Uh, if, a, you know, if someone's a product of rape, we wouldn't kill them whether they're born or unborn. And if someone's life is in danger, just as we wouldn't kill one, one born person directly to save the life of another born person, uh, we shouldn't directly kill an unborn child to save a mother's life, though we might act in a way to... Uh, to solve the problem that's facing the mother and the child might die indirectly. Uh, and that's a philosophical principle called double effect that we see also with born people as well. And I go into more detail in my book about how to explain those particular cases. Yeah. And uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, I don't want to be too vague about the book, but I'm also trying not to give too much information because I do really want people to go out and, and buy your book and, and read it because I think there's a lot of great information on it. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be purposely vague, but not so vague that it doesn't come across what, what I'm asking because I want to encourage people to do that. Um, we kind of left the uh, the bodily rights thing hanging a little bit. But, yeah, as you mentioned, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little more detail when we talk about your debate because that was kind of a big uh, issue that uh, issue with uh, David Boonin's uh, main case for his, for his uh, position. In fact, uh, I'll just ask you one more here about your book, and then I really want to get into the debate because I think some of the questions I have regarding your debate are a bit more substantial and meatier. It might require a little more time. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah, now, so, okay, so when we talk about the religious then, that there are religious people who uh, believe, in fact, you, you make the statement in your book that they don't just believe that abortion is not wrong. They don't believe that abortion is a sin. If someone was to use the Bible to support an abortion choice position, uh, how would you respond to that? Like if they were trying to make the case that God is pro-choice, because, uh, you know, we, we see things in, in the Bible. For, for example, um, there's that passage which, which says that uh, – one of the most common passages that an abortion choice Christian will take uh, is the passage that shows that, for example, two men are fighting and strike a, a pregnant woman, which results in yeah. an abortion. And so if there's no injury, she, he, you know, she's just to be, or the father is just to be compensated. But if there is injury, then then to repay life with life. And they say that the injury or the, the death is uh, regarding the pregnant woman, not to the fetus, which is just treated as property in that case. How would you respond to someone who makes that kind of argument? Well, I would make from that argument that it doesn't follow that just because in the Bible a human being, the death of a human being is not returned with capital punishment, 
Um, it, it doesn't follow that, therefore, you can directly kill those human beings. Uh, and the passage you're referring to is found in Exodus 21, 22 through 25. You're right, a very, very common one. Right. Um, but lots of people have addressed it. I've addressed it in my book. Uh, you can go to Stand a Reason or, or Life Training Institute. Uh, you know, it, it's been addressed. Mm-hmm. I, I point out in Scripture there's other places where if, if you accidentally kill a slave, for example, if you accidentally mm-hmm. kill a slave, um, you know, there's, there's no punishment, at least no severe punishment. Well, I believe, yeah, there's no punishment. It's considered, um, you know, accidental killing. That in the, the Old Testament, people were assigned, uh, you know, different values among the Old Testament people of God. But it doesn't mean, therefore, that not, any of them were subhuman or that you could kill them for any reason. So what I would say is, right. well, look, if you're a pro-choice Christian, you know, well, where does the Bible talk about abortion? They, because that's a common argument they use against us. They say, well, the Bible doesn't say don't abort people. I'd say, well, it also says, you know, don't um, hijack airplanes. But I can infer that from <laughs> thou shalt not steal. So right. uh, yeah. I can infer don't kill the unborn from thou shalt not kill. And the hmm. question of whether the unborn are human, I would turn to science uh, to answer that question. Because if we're talking about laws, like whether abortion should be legal or illegal, you would, I would say to them, look, do you think the law should be built on a non-religious foundation? And then their, their arguments start to go up there. A little bit. I, I think the worst pro-choice argument I hear is this one. God gave us free will, so people should be allowed to be pro-choice. I mean, if someone took that argument seriously, because God didn't make us robots, therefore there shouldn't be any laws against killing or harming anyone else. Uh, right. I, I think what's hard is people think of abortion as just a purely sectarian issue. Like, you know, you choose to go to your church, I go to my church, it's a religious issue, don't impede. But it's not uh, any more so than people who used religion to justify slavery. People used right. religion to justify and oppose slavery 150 years ago. But still, you should look at the rational arguments, and those arguments will help you see whose religious interpretation is correct and whose is erroneous. Okay, and then just uh, I had one other question regarding regarding the conflicted. Uh, you actually you, you do make a distinction in your book between people who make a life of the mother case and people who make a health of the mother case. Now, I, I think life of the mother cases are, are uh, easier to, to justify, but are, uh, would you say that there are any, uh, any health exceptions that would justify a procedure to remove the, the embryo or fetus from the womb, or if, it, or if it's only a, a life-threatening case that justifies it? Yeah, I, um, I'd have to look at the, the different cases. Uh, I would say that directly removing the child um, in most cases would constitute um, killing the child, would constitute a direct abortion, and that would be immoral. Uh, there are other cases where we might not be sure. I mean, let's take, for example, a woman might be suffering from uterine cancer, and the cancer might kill her. Or let's say they say, well, there's a five percent chance it will kill you uh but there is a 75 percent chance that the cancer will leave you you know severely maimed for example uh so there's still a chance of death but there's a chance of of severe bodily injury Uh, i would say in that case uh i mean i'm not it is always hard i need to deliberate about these sometimes because the harm that is caused is the the death of the child that's a grave harm and so your action should be trying to avoid an equal or greater harm. 
So it would be hard to, to say exactly in those cases um, if double effect would apply. Because uh, I'd say, for example, if I was in a lifeboat with you and you have some kind of disease uh, that I need to kick you out of the lifeboat or else I'm going to be blinded, I'm going to be paralyzed, um, I would say, no, I, I'm not morally justified in, in kicking you out of the lifeboat uh, in that case. Now, if I were trying to steady the lifeboat so that both of us can survive in a healthy way and you un indirectly fall out and I'm not intending that, then maybe that could be justified just as maybe an intervention to stop a disease, which is good. It's good to stop a disease like uterine cancer, may be justified even, you know, if there's, a, there's grave harm, maybe not necessarily fatal, but at least grave, serious, and the death of the child is indirect and it's not intended. But that does get us into thorny issues. But I would say in general, right. you, you can't directly kill one person to save another person's life, much less to prevent them from developing a serious health complication. If that's clear in cases among born people, I'd say it's clear among the unborn as well. That's uh, sort of a basic kind of overview of your book, Persuasive for Life. Now, the way that I would describe it, because you do talk about, a lot about the arguments in your book, but it, it seems to me that it's more geared toward um, – helping pro-life people be ambassadors and that the arguments that you talk about uh, are not unimportant or brushed to the side, but they're, they're more like situated in the context of the individual people that you come across. Is that kind of a, kind of a fair assessment of your book? Yeah. What I'm trying, I want to make something accessible. I mean, and there may come a time in the future. I've thought about writing a more, especially after the debate with David Boonin, uh, yeah. I thought about writing a more academic treatment of abortion at all angles and, mm -hmm. or even a wider treatment about the unborn in general. Uh, but what I'm trying to do is make, I tried to make Resistive Pro-Life very accessible using arguments and rhetoric, people here yeah. from their coworkers, their friends, and to help people see not how to just diffuse an argument, uh, mm -hmm. but how to diffuse personalities and tempers and others on a, on a very contentious issue. Okay. So, uh, in fact, I was, as I was rereading your book to prepare for the interview tonight, I, I was actually, uh, I was actually calling, it was calling back to mind some of the things that you and, and David Boonin had talked about in your debate. Uh, I'd forgotten that you actually <laughs> talk about some of those things, such as uh, the case of McFall v. Shemp, which really yes. was kind of the, which was really kind of the cornerstone of, of Boonin's uh, case in his debate. And so with yeah. that, uh, we'll go ahead and segue then into talking about your debate. Now, um, I was, uh, you know, I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but I was thoroughly impressed with how you handled yourself in your debate. Not to say that I was expecting you to, you know, bomb or anything like that. Wonder. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, no, so, so like I said, don't take this the wrong way. It, it's just, I, you know, I thought you did, you did extremely well. Uh, you definitely came prepared and it showed in your responses to, uh, to Boonin's arguments. And so... Uh, yeah, I was really, really happy with how the debate turned out because Boonin's a really, really smart guy. And if you're going oh, to yeah. debate someone of Boonin's caliber, you really need to read his book and come prepared. And, uh, and you definitely did that. The first question that I have is actually one that was posed by one of my, my friend and colleague in, uh, in LTI, Nathan Apodaca. He's, he actually is wondering, uh, I don't know if he's senior debate or not, but he was wondering what your thoughts are on Thompson's forced organ donation argument. The idea being that if we're going to uh, keep abortion legal, if we are going to say that the unborn entity has a right to, uh, to use the woman's uterus and she can't expel the embryo or fetus, then we would also have to say that, uh, that some people might have an obligation to give blood or, um, or bone marrow, such as in the case of McFall v. Shemp, or even a, a non-vital organ. 
So how would you respond to this idea that, that we would justify forced organ donation if we kept abortion illegal? Sure. And what I would say to that argument is that uh, what we're dealing with here is the classic kind of moral reasoning, especially in contemporary moral philosophy, about how to resolve ethical issues, moral debates, and dilemmas. And the idea is that, well, if there's situation X, and we don't know what's right or wrong in situation X, let's come up with an analogous situation, situation Y, where it's really, really clear what we should do. So if we know what to do with Y, and Y and X are basically the same, well, lo and behold, we know what to do in X now. And so the idea is, well, abortion, we're not sure. People disagree. Hey, look, abortion's just like uh, donating an organ to keep another person alive. And we all, almost everybody agrees, you shouldn't have to donate an organ against your will uh, to somebody else or be forced to kept and keep another person alive with your body. And so my response to that is that this argument doesn't work because the analogy is too disanalogous, that there's too many dissimilarities and so the moral principle does not carry over. And I think that's the job of pro-life advocates in rebutting these arguments is to show where the analogy breaks down and where there's certain assumptions built into the argument that carry over. Um, so, I mean, I'll talk about that, those assumptions more in detail a little bit later. Uh, well, let me talk about one just, just right now. The idea with these arguments is fine. I agree with you. People like Boone and Thompson and others will say, I agree it's a human being, it's a person, at least for the sake of the argument. But you don't have to give other people your body in order to live. And I think an assumption that's smuggled into this is that human beings are basically just a bunch of strangers who all live on the earth, and the only obligations we have to one another are the ones we explicitly assume. Uh, rather, but as Frank Beckwith points out in his book Defending Life, this is not the pro-life view of personhood. The pro-life view of personhood is not just that the unborn have intrinsic value or that humans have intrinsic value, but that humans have intrinsic obligations and duties to one another. We exist as persons who are mother, father, son, daughter. Uh, so we exist as persons with intrinsic value and rights in relation to others. And so because of that, we incur duties to one another in virtue of those relationships that were, you know, so that starts to really nail down at, by the way, at the idea that the fetus and the woman, which I would say the mother and the child are basically just like you and a stranger in a hospital. So that's one. And then we, I try to go after the, the disanalog, disanalogous parts of the argument. Yeah. So, so essentially as we would argue uh, against Thompson's violinist thought experiment in that there are too many disanalogies between the violinist case and pregnancy. We would also argue then that there are too many disanalogies between forced organ donation and pregnancy to justify the forced organ donation argument. Is that? Oh, yes, pretty much exactly. And I think I, okay. I, I believe I brought this up in the debate, um, but I would say that forced organ donation is not really the analogy. The more correct analogy with abortion is you give your organ to somebody else, mm -hmm. and then the state prohibits you from, from violently taking it back. So, right. Because that's the thing. Like McFall versus Shemp is a court case where uh, Shemp had bone marrow McFall needed to live, and McFall couldn't force Shemp to give the bone marrow. Uh, but in pregnancy, what we're dealing with is the condition where uh, the donation is in process or the, you know, one body is 
dependent on another body and one person is petitioning to kill the, the dependent body or the child. So that's a clear difference for me um, right there and others need to point out. Okay, and then an, I, I actually have another question here from uh, from another friend and colleague in uh, LTI, uh, Aaron Brake, uh, had a question regarding, he did watch your debate, and I'm not sure if he um, if he just has just missed this or if it or if you touched on it um, sometime later, but uh, essentially you were talking about the personhood criteria, and you uh, in your I believe it was in your opening statement you mentioned that there are certain criteria that abortion choice advocates will bring forth to disqualify unborn people from personhood, such as sentience or self awareness or consciousness or even a combination of, of those factors, and then Boone yeah. in his rebuttal said, well, okay, but. Uh, we, we can say that these are necessary conditions, meaning that they must be present in order to be a person, but they're not sufficient conditions, meaning that even if you have it, it's not sufficient to make you a person. So uh, Aaron was uh, was really curious in how you would respond to Boonin's response regarding the necessary versus sufficient conditions of personhood criteria. Yeah, sure. I think this actually came about during the, the Q&A period where Boonin made mm-hmm. a I'm not sure, but I think because I remember this, he made that comment, uh, and, and this was, I think it was in response to me saying something, and then I didn't have a chance to respond to it at that point in the debate, and uh, a mm. chance to respond never came up later, really. And I, don't, I didn't bring it yeah. up in my closing because that wasn't a central point of his case. Uh, but, yeah, I would say that when, yeah, someone could make that strategy uh, kind of an evasive strategy or changing the criteria. But my point mm. is when, when I'm talking about pro, in my opening statement, I actually brought up stuff that was more general that pro-choicers make. And so I say, well, and when pro-choicers talk about personhood, usually they're talking about sufficient conditions. You know, a person is someone who can do X or Y or Z. And when they do that, I'll say, well, that includes non-human animals. And so they could take Boonin's approach and say, okay, never mind. A person is just somebody who, uh, you know, to be a person, you must at least be able to do these things. But there's other stuff you have to have as well. And so I would, my reply would be, well, why then are these necessary conditions? Why does that matter? In the debate, I brought up a counterexample to that, which would be an infant who's born comatose and is expected to recover. And I think Boonin wanted to say, well, that's a controversial case, uh, you know, so it, it's not as helpful for the pro-lifer. I think most people, if you're told, well, this infant was born in 24 hours, they will have their first conscious experience. I, I hardly think anybody except for philosophy majors would doubt that the person that's a human being right. who ought not to be euthanized. So, uh, so that's, an, that's one, a counter example I brought up, but then I'd ask them to say, well, you can make that a necessary condition, but what's your, your justification for it? And, and finally I would say, well, this must not be that important of a criteria, you know, con- you know, being uh, able to survive outside of the womb or conscious because it doesn't make somebody a person. Rather, they'll say, well, it's these necessary conditions and belonging to the human species. And what I say there is, well, it sounds like belonging to the human species, that, that's doing the bulk or almost the entirety of the moral work for your position. Uh, because right. obviously these other criteria don't because you won't let animals with those same criteria be persons. So to me, mm. I, would, mm. I would accuse the pro-choice advocate of, of being ad hoc or coming up yeah. with a criteria that's inconsistent in design to exclude the unborn. Uh, and what's funny is after the debate, I heard David Boone talking to some people, 
And it's funny, he said he's more of an agnostic on the question of fetal personhood. He, th- he thinks the bodily rights argument is much stronger than arguments against fetal personhood, uh, which is funny because he'll admit among most pro-choice philosophers, it's the reverse. Most of them are not convinced of the bodily rights argument, but they do oppose fetal personhood. Yeah, you know, um, a couple, I think it was a couple years ago, I actually went to Colorado and I got to meet both uh, Boonin and Michael Tooley and got to kind of uh, have a discussion with, with both of them. And that was actually something that, uh, that Tooley told me is that he's not convinced of the bodily rights argument because he can always conceive of a case like a woman is pregnant but is stranded on a desert island on a shipwreck or something, gives birth, and then uh, would, she, you know, would she be able then to, to kill the, the child because the whole the whole idea behind bodily rights kind of carries with it this idea that parents don't have natural obligations to their offspring. And so if she right. decides not to take on those obligations, then it seems like even if the child is born, she would still have the moral right to, to kill the child as an infant. So I, I do find that kind of interesting that, that philosophers in general uh, argue personhood. That's where the argument's at, because bodily rights isn't seen as, as very persuasive. But Boonin is kind yeah. of different. But, but, he, he's a, well, okay, Boonin is, is a kind of guy who's willing to take on a counterintuitive uh, thesis. Uh, one of my favorite books okay. of his is The Problem of Punishment, where he argues that the state doesn't have a right to punish people. Well, at the end of the book, he says the state can punish, but it has to call it restitution. But that it'd be, mm. but essentially that punishment is immoral. Uh, so he's, a, he's an interesting okay. guy. I like him a lot. Yeah, so then um, he brought up something that I thought was, was kind of interesting, and I'd like to – I don't remember if you uh, really responded to this in detail in the debate. I'd kind of like to get your thoughts on it. Uh, when you objected that we force men to pay child support, so to be consistent, because forcing men to pay child support, even in the case where a man didn't consent to the creation of a child, you know, for example, if a man is raped or if his, you know, if his sperm is somehow stolen and, and artificially injected into a woman, if a, if a child is conceived – with his seed, the court will still, or at least can still, require him to pay child support, despite the fact that he never consented to the creation of the child. And so it seems like, to be consistent, we can also say that, that we can prevent women from having an abortion because they took part in creating the child. And, and forcing the man to pay child support is in the child's best interest, so preventing abortion would also be in the child's best interest. Uh, but then Boonin raised an objection that that doesn't follow because if it did, then while the government has the right to take money from you to pay for medical testing, it would also have the right to use your body against your will for medical testing. How would you respond to Boonin's objection? Yeah, I think I mentioned this in the debate that, that this objection, the child support objection, is not my main argument, that it's not meant to work in isolation from my case mm-hmm. against him. Uh, in fact, yeah. in Q and in our, our cross-examination, I brought up the point that I think what he, I mean, he's adept at doing this, and a philosopher could do this, uh, especially against a, you know, a pro-life advocate who's, who's not as prepared on this subject, to just try to, the pro-life advocate makes these objections to the bodily rights argument, and the, the, the pro-choice advocate like Boonin will say, well, here's why this objection doesn't work, and this objection doesn't do the whole job, and this objection doesn't. But I would say, no, you have to consider them also together cumulatively, showing that something is disanalogous. Uh, They build on one another. And so the child support objection, my point in bringing that up, was that we require male parents to undergo significant burdens when they are responsible for causing a child to exist. Uh, Even if they, they, they did not want to, took precautions against it, yada, yada. 
So it follows that we can expect women to undergo significant burdens for their offspring as well. Uh, Now, the rejoinder is, well, and Boonin talks about this in his book, and in the debate he brought it up as well. Yes, but the, the burdens, while both are significant, one are of different kinds. Now, some people will say the burden of child support is different than the burden of pregnancy because it's not as burdensome. And actually, I, I don't remember if I mentioned this in the debate, uh, but actually you could make an argument that they're equally burdensome, if, if not child support may be more burdensome, uh, because a, person who pays, a man who pays child support will have to pay about $100,000 over the course of 18 years, uh, but a woman who uh, undergoes pregnancy, a surrogate, a woman who is hired to become pregnant, is usually compensated about $50,000. So her burdens are calculated to be worth kind of that, that amount of, of money, to put it in a, a crude way. Uh, so, right. so I'd say there is, well, well I'm not going to say, and what's funny is actually I've asked several women who have had children, which would you rather have? Would you rather go through another pregnancy for nine months or pay $500 a month for the next 18 years? And all of them picked pregnancy. So that's one. Um, hmm. But then the rejoinder might be, okay, fine, maybe even if one's more burdensome, uh, pregnancy is a type of burden we can't impose, a, a bodily intimate type that we don't expect men to undergo. And uh, in his book, Boonin says, you know, we don't expect men to pay child support by taking a drug that makes them suffer from a pseudo-pregnancy. And that's where another <laughs> argument of mine would pick up that we might talk about, which is, Yes, but it's not an excessive claim, an extraordinary claim to ask women to sustain the life of a child by allowing their organs to function as they naturally do to sustain that child's life. So we're, we're not, that's not an extraordinary claim like it would be to ask a man to have his body function in an extraordinary, unnatural way to sustain the life of a child. So they have to retrofit each other, the, the arguments, and the, well, the objections really from the pro-life side. But my point yeah. of bringing up child support is, is just that base conclusion. If men who cause children to come into existence are expected to undergo significant burdens to keep those children alive uh, or to pr- support them, then women should be expected to undergo significant burdens as well. And then the other arguments fall into place. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is just kind of the impression that I got when I was listening to Boonin's opening argument. But it seemed to be that Boonin was defending his case largely by intuition, not really by reason. He, he used it a couple of times to make a reductio ad absurdum against the pro-life view, showing that the pro-life view leads to absurdities regarding McFall v. Shemp, and so the pro-life view should be rejected based on those grounds. But you know, he started off by asking the audience, you know, who here feels that, uh, that Shemp should have been forced to give McFall his bone marrow, or, or the other way around, whichever one was... Uh, was needing the bone marrow. Which one, you know, how many of you feel? Yeah, McFall uh, needs it. So yeah. Okay, so yeah. So how many of you feel that uh, that Shemp should have been forced to give McFall his his bone marrow? And of course, people raise their hands. And then he he kind of used that to show that if your intuition on this is correct, then we would have to say that abortion itself is permissible. So it seemed really more like he was making an, an intuitive kind of argument rather than a rational argument. Is that? Is that kind of a fair assessment? Or, I, I don't or think do I would, you feel different. I don't think I would put it. I wouldn't put it that way per se. I would say both of us relied on intuitions to drive our moral <laughs> thinking, and he was making a reasoned argument by analogy that if you intuitively believe in this one case, 
and there's nothing. And he was actually kind of relying on me a little bit. That's just making, he was making the assumption these two cases are similar. So right. if you're okay with case McFall and Shemp, you should be okay with abortion. And then he mm. says, of course, of course, many people will say they're not similar. So let's talk about those differences. And he goes through some of those in, in his opening. Uh, okay. So he relies on the pro-lifer actually to make the objections. And then he feels the bulk of his work is just to answer the objections from the pro-lifer who says, well, no, they're, they're too different. They're not the same. And that's where mm. I, you know, he gets in the nitty gritty on everything. But I would say I used intuitions as well, including to, um, to reply to that. I mean, one thing I tried to show, because the claim against Boonin in my argument was in premise three, I said abort, because sometimes pro-life advocates, they'll have an invalid argument. They'll say, well, um, uh, you know, the unborn is a human being. Uh, you know, it's, uh, all human beings have a right to life. Uh, the unborn have a right to life. Uh, therefore, abortion is wrong. Uh, but that argument doesn't work because it's missing a very important premise, which is abortion kills or violates the right to life of a human being. Because mm. Boone would say, I agree, but it doesn't violate the right to life. So I included that as premise three in my argument. Okay. And to get people's intuition to see that, I showed them a computer animation of a first trimester abortion procedure. Uh, mm. which I wanted to say, hey, look, this is really serious. This is not just ivory tower academics philosophizing. We're talking about right. doing this to a human being. And I, I think some of those intuitions will show, no, that's not the same as choosing to not give somebody bone marrow. And so I, I think we, we, you know, we both use intuitions to varying uh, degrees of success. Okay. Now, you made another argument uh, for, for your, your pro-life position, uh, which – uh, well, I, I call it the womb teleology argument. I don't know if I if I got that from from somewhere or if it was just something that that came to mind. Uh, you and and Stephanie Gray are really the only two pro life advocates that I've actually seen use this specific argument. Even though I know a number of uh, pro life, for example, philosophers like Ed Fieser and Frank Beckwith would would make uh, teleological arguments regarding the uh, the goal directedness of the embryo and those kinds of things, but. Regarding the womb teleology argument itself, I've only really seen you two make this kind of argument that the the uh, embryo slash fetus has a natural claim to to the, the the mother's womb because the womb itself, the uterus, is is not directed toward preservation of the woman's body as the rest of her body parts are, but that the uterus itself is more for the the embryo or fetus because the uterus is there to facilitate the pregnancy and to keep the the embryo or fetus alive. And so to this kind of argument, uh, Boonin actually gave two objections. He said that if you, if you mean that the woman is naturally ordered to sustaining her own child, then if a different child was inserted into her womb, then aborting that one would be permissible. Or secondly, if not that, if you mean it's ordered towards sustaining any child, then to be consistent, you would have to say that Shemp should have been legally compelled to give McFall his bone marrow because his bone marrow isn't just ordered toward keeping his own body alive, but for keeping all bodies alive. And so he kind of presented this as a dilemma toward uh, your womb teleology argument. And so how would you respond then to the dilemma that Boonin has, uh, has erected here? Yeah, I think what I would say is the uterus is for the woman to procreate and it's for sustaining the life of children that she conceives. And, and I think that's fair to say that is what it's for, but it, that doesn't necessarily follow that she would have no moral obligation whatsoever if a child were implanted into her womb. Uh, for example, I could say that a woman's breasts 
are designed to nourish her child, uh, but she could also use them to sustain the life of other children. Uh, and it may be morally obligatory, but not the same moral obligation we would, that we would say she definitely can't let her own child starve to death when she can nurse her child. Uh, but she may have an obligation to sustain other children that, that are not related to her. Um, so, so I think that's one way to go around it. Uh, two, I think that what Boone is trying to say is, well, if it's for any child who happens to reside in the womb, then Shemp's bone marrow is, for, is not just for Shemp, uh, it's for anybody, really, who needs it. And I think that, yeah. and unfortunately, I don't think I was able to, to get this uh, reply in in one of my rebuttals, uh, which is, of course, haphazard of live debates. Uh, but what right. I would say yeah. is, I mean, let's go back to the breastfeeding example. Uh, to say the woman is required to breastfeed her own child or anyone else, to make it analogous to the Shemp case, it would be like saying, well, then she's also oblig- if she's obligated to sustain her ch- children in general by being nourished from her breast, then she's obligated to donate her breast ducts or breast tissue to a woman to help her nurse other people. And we would say there is, wait, 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 wait a minute. Yes, she has an obligation, an ordinary obligation to use her breast as they naturally function to lactate, although in theory, actually, men could do that as well if they were given the right hormones, but to use them yeah. the natural way to produce milk to sustain a child, but to surgically remove them and implant them in another woman, that would be extraordinary. And it's not their natural function that corresponds to ordinary use and ordinary obligations. Much the same that bone marrow, when it's extracted from Shem's body to give to McFall, is not functioning as it as it normally would in relation to his body, just as a woman's uterus functions naturally in relation to her own body. So I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a shrewd objection, and it, and it goes to a core. I, I'd like more pro-lifers, really, to take this seriously. And here's why. Because uh, I do agree with this argument, and we could talk about this objection a little bit. The, the most powerful objection is the responsibility objection. And that's where I think Boonin's case really started to crumble in front of people in the audience. Uh, that is, yeah. that the difference between the, you know, the McFall case or Thompson's violinist or abortion is that in 99% of abortion cases, you are the reason a child, a person is sick and stands in need of assistance. So mm-hmm. you're obligated to help them. I know that's actually Thule's big objection to, to it. So, um, uh, but pro-lifers, this, the womb theology, natural organ use argument, I'd like them to take it more seriously because then what about, though, in cases of rape? I know many people who say, well, I'm kind of sympathetic to the argument in the case of rape, uh, Thompson and the forced organ one, because now it's a lot more similar. And here's where I'd say, well, we still have to talk about this key difference about the natural use of, of organs and what parents are expected to do for their children or for other human being. So I do say, I'd like to see pro-lifers do more work on this aspect of the bodily rights argument. Yeah. So then if, if we're going to say then that the embryo slash fetus has a natural right to the use of the, of the woman's uterus, even if we say it's the, the uterus itself is just geared toward facilitating the pregnancy of any child that she, uh, that she conceives, then we would also say that that, uh, that's one thing that grounds the wrongness of killing her own child, but it doesn't then follow from that that if she had a different child, like if she was a surrogate or some or something, that it wouldn't follow that just because she doesn't have that, that it's not her own child that she conceived, that she could then kill the child, essentially. Uh, right, and, and you go back to the breastfeeding example. If you choose to yeah. uh, spend a week babysitting someone and you don't have formula and you promise to breastfeed that child, 
Well, you've, mm-hmm. you've now incurred a voluntary obligation. Uh, or if a child's abandoned on your doorstep and it's the only way you can sustain them, uh, people might be divided in that case about whether a woman has an obligation. But I, I think they would see that it's not extraordinary to ask her to, to nurse uh, an infant dropped on her doorstep, whereas it would be extraordinary if the only way to keep this child alive would be for her to cut off her arm or foot and cook it and, you know, feed the child like meat or something in that way. We, yeah. I think we would say in that case, that's not obligatory because that's what, not what arms and feet and hands and legs are for. But right. you can use your breakfast as the way they're, they're naturally designed. Otherwise, you've let the child starve and things like that. Um, also, I think it's important, and, you know, Boonin has another objection to this. He's got 18 mm. objections he covers in his book. But, I mm. mean, if we say the child is a person and the unborn child has a right to life, to me, that becomes kind of a meaningless statement if it does not include the right to uh, reside in their mother's body, because that's the one thing they need to be alive. I think I brought up in the, um, in the debate, I said, that's like saying to a disenfranchised minority, you have the right to vote, absolutely, but you don't have the right to enter a voting place without the supervisor's permission. Well, then that's just a right to vote in name only because the person can always just refuse. You don't have a right at all then. And so that's where I think if we're going to drive home, remember those assumptions, if the fetus has a right to life, I feel like that's got to entail the right to reside in their mother's body. Otherwise, they don't really have a right to life at all. Right, right. Yeah, now uh, various thinkers uh, such as Thompson, uh, Judith Jarvis Jarvis Thompson and David Boonin, Uh, They argue that it's not our biological connectedness to our children that grounds an obligation to care for them, but the fact that the mother chooses to allow the child to be born, which indicates her consent to raise the child and then take on those obligations. Um, Now, would you say biological connectedness has to do with it, or is it mainly the fact that she was active in conceiving uh, or bringing the child into existence, or is it kind of a combination of both? Well, I would say... um primarily the moral obligation arises from being the child's parent. That if a child has a right to life, uh, then before and after birth, the duty, because if a child has a right to life, that right, it does not, doesn't, doesn't exist, or it doesn't make sense if there's no corresponding duty to provide for that child. So if we say, for example, a newborn infant has a right to life, that means that other adults must provide for that infant or else they have violated the child's rights. So for me, that if, a chi- if an unborn baby has a right to life, it must follow the child's parents just like after birth. They have duties to sustain that child. And one of the, re- one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons they do is because they're responsible for the child's existence in the first place. But also just from the natural obligations that arise from the, the roles of parents uh, mother and father that exists in human beings as part of our human nature. Um, so, I mean, what I would say is, so, so yeah, Thompson and Boonin would argue, and I think Boonin argued this in the, in the debate, is, well, no, the reason parents have obligations uh, to children is not just that they are the parent. It's because, as you said, uh, they choose to bring the child home from the hospital, and that's where they incur the obligation. Uh, but, but actually, in the cross-examination, I think I showed the problem with that with the position I asked David Boone, and let's imagine a woman who doesn't know she's pregnant, and then she gives birth at home, and another woman who finds a baby abandoned in a field. 
And what Boone would say is, well, the, the woman with the baby in the field at least has a minimal obligation to take the child somewhere safe, yada, yada. But the question I asked him was, does the mother who gives birth at home and, and you know, d- doesn't know that she's pregnant, does she have more of a responsibility towards the child than the woman who finds a child in the field? And he said yes, but he wasn't sure how to explain it. And I think that that severely undercuts his case because what else does if two women find a baby in their midst unexpectedly, um, yet one has more obligation than the other? And it seems to me the reason that, that one does is because it's the child's parent. It's their parent that has that. Now, you could argue the, the responsibility objection and, and all that other ways, but I feel like in general people know that parents have greater obligations to their children, and, so that, and that follows as to why they ought to sustain their child both before and after birth. So, um, so that's mm-hmm. one way I would go about it. Okay, so you mentioned the um, you mentioned the responsibility objection earlier regarding uh, the you know the violinist uh, scenario, and I want to make sure I, I was understanding your your point correctly here that you would say that we we talk about for example if someone is talking about bodily rights and it's my right to my body and therefore I have a right to uh, have an abortion because I uh, should not be legally compelled to remain as life support for for anyone even an unborn child. The response then would be that she has a responsibility to it because uh, she was the active uh, person in, you know, w- with the father, of course, but she was one of the active people who was responsible for bringing that uh, that child into existence, into a, nat- in a naturally needy state, and so she bears an obligation then to care for it. So someone then could argue, well, okay, but what about in cases of rape? In cases of rape, she was not responsible for the creation of that child, and now the child is in there against her will, so she should have a, a right to remove it. So then that's when you would then talk about that the fact that it has a natural, I guess, a natural claim to the uterus because the uterus is, uh, is meant for the fetus or embryo, not for her, that you would go into that argument if they were to uh, yeah, talk about rape? Yeah, I would talk about that. that. I would talk about the natural rights children have to their parents, even if the parents haven't assumed that or are responsible. That I mean, the, the, they're still the parent, and so the child has to turn to them for help. Even if the parent did nothing to create the child, the child is still here. So there's a natural duty that arises there. Uh, and then the other key difference I'd bring up is this case is not like being plugged into the violinist or McFall v. Shemp, uh, because, and I think you know, Boonin objected to this in the debate, but I don't think the objection works, is that in the case of abortion, the woman is choosing to kill this child uh, because she does not want to continue the pregnancy uh, or does not want to give birth to them or, frankly, doesn't want the child to exist at all in most cases. Uh, whereas in the other cases, you're not killing someone. You're refusing to save someone's life. You are letting someone die. And that is morally different than choosing to kill someone. Uh, and so I think that even in the case of, of rape, applying the bodily rights argument, we would say that a parent does not have a right to kill their own child, even if they didn't re- directly cause the child to come into existence. Uh, and so, and of course, we can there be the debate about killing versus letting die, and that sort of thing. But but I do think that the, the cases uh, that objection is still a very potent one. 
Yeah, so here's an argument that I that I once saw, and I'm not sure what I think of it yet. I, I wanted to just kind of pose it to you and see see what you think of it. Now, obviously, uh, you know, rape is a very traumatic thing, and it's not something that any of us would want what women to undergo. Obviously, it's uh, something that she needs proper care for, and so you know, I don't want anyone listening to think that you know we're, we're not treating it with with the, the gravity that it deserves. So just mm-hmm. just uh, just as a little disclaimer there, um, but a pro-life person, a more philosophically inclined pro-life person said that even though she, uh, she she didn't willfully want the child to come into existence, that she she is still the cause of of the the embryo's existence because she even though she didn't take an active or didn't have like an uh, a willful part to play, that she was still the efficient cause of the embryo. And he seemed to believe that that her being the efficient cause grounded an obligation then to take care of that of that child. What do you think of that uh, particular way to go? Yeah, I just wouldn't phrase it that way. Um, what I would phrase it is going back to the idea of who human persons are. Uh, they have intrinsic dignity and rights and uh, the right to, you know, not be killed unjustly, a right to life, a right to be, uh, uh, not be tortured, and also positive rights, the right to, for children, the right to be loved and cared for by their parents, uh, that children have an intimate relationship and in, of communion in life with those who are, who are responsible for their existence. So I wouldn't say that a rape victim is an efficient cause of the existence of a child. Therefore, she has a duty to that child. <laughs> but I, what I would say is, <laughs> right. well, even in that case, this child has a father and mother still. The, every mm-hmm. child has a father and mother. The father right. is a no-good criminal. And mm-hmm. so this child now has only one person who, through the order of nature, is ordered towards being the advocate and defender of this child and the sustainer and provider for this child, and that is the child's mother. And so I would say that even in cases where motherhood or fatherhood is unjustly foisted upon us, we should not uh, take violent actions towards a child to remedy that injustice. Yeah. Now, um, something that I've heard some talk about is the possibility of an artificial uterus, basically creating an artificial environment in which an embryo or fetus could survive. And then if that were to become a reality, that we could then remove the unborn child from the mother without killing the child. Would that be something you would support? Or would you say that it should only be done in the most extreme of situations since the child has a, a right to be uh, gestated within the mother? Is, is that a right you would say the uh, unborn entity has? Or would uh, transferring it to uh, to an artificial environment be permissible? Oh, you had to ask me this question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, this wasn't this wasn't really one I I, I had thought about in advance. It it kind of just came oh, to that's me because fine. That's, no, no, I I um, I enjoy being put on the spot. Um, for that right. particular moral issue, uh, I have not reached a clear, definitive position mm-hmm. on this, or at least, and the, the issue is this. Do unborn children have a right to reside in their mother's body? And is it always morally permissible to remove them, number one? And number two, to remove, to remove them, one, and two, to implant them somewhere else, either in another surrogate, another woman, or in an artificial womb to continue the pregnancy? I think that I would say that it's not immoral to remove a child from the womb. It's not intrinsically immoral because, you know, let's say you're working on a second trimester fetus in a surgery and like Samuel Armas, the boy with spina bifida in that famous photograph, you might remove them partially from the womb to operate on them. 
ever so a few inches, but they're out. And then you put them back in again. I don't see anything morally wrong with that, that the, the same pregnancy continues. There's nothing unnatural or just disordered from what's happened that there's a medical intervention. I mean, the, the medicine is unnatural in the sense that, you know, we're using technology, but nature is right. not perverted in any way. Uh, now, removing the child and continue and not continuing that pregnancy, but essentially creating a new pregnancy artificially or in another woman's body. Uh, I'm not, I am on the fence. I have not, I'm agnostic. I haven't decided if that's immoral or not. And there is a debate among Catholic ethicists and theologians about um, uh, what should be done. Uh, even uh, some very uh, conservative uh, Catholic theologians and ethicists are divided on this issue. Uh, so there's a great book actually put out by the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Uh, I believe it's called Human Embryo Adoption. Uh, so it's, I think you can find it on Amazon. It's edited by Father Thomas Berg and Ed Furton. Uh, it's got, it's an anthology of different, um, mostly I think Catholic opinions on the subject of whether it's, it's right or wrong to adopt a human embryo, which would also hmm. entail whether they should be implanted. Um, so at this point, uh, I'm not, I, I have not settled on my definitive answer to the question. I'm still researching it. Uh, but I'm hoping to yeah. do some more research about the rights of the unborn in general and, and coming to a firm personal, the Catholic church does, is, does not have a position on this. That's what I tell Catholics who have questions that is, mm. so far the church has not prohibited this, uh, hasn't yeah. endorsed it either. Um, mm. but as for myself, I have not sided with one, you know, one side mm. on the Catholic debate on this or another. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I really haven't come to a firm, con- uh, like a firm conclusion in my mind on that either. And I do know that, uh, Christopher Kayser devotes a chapter to this question in his book, the ethics of abortion. And so, uh, yeah, it, it just kind of popped into my mind as something I'd be interested in getting your, your take on, but it was, it also kind of pertains to this next question that I had for you, which is why I was thinking, well, maybe I'll just pose it as a, as a preliminary question to kind of get your thoughts on that. And then maybe that would help kind of, springboard into this next question, kind of set up um, how you would, would answer this. In, in the debate between you and Boonin, uh, you would make the distinction between killing in the case of abortion and letting die in the case of McFall v. Shemp, where if uh, yeah. Shemp refused to uh, give bone marrow to McFall, he wasn't killing McFall, he was just allowing McFall to die. And now, of course, there's a separate question about whether or not Shemp has a moral obligation to, to give bone marrow to McFall, even even if it's not in the court's purview to force, to legally compel Shemp to do so. But Boonin responded that killing is not essential to abortion, and that it's not necessarily the case that you're killing someone just by putting them in an environment in which they cannot survive. Uh, he says that in order to make that case, you either have to assume the person had a right to it in the first place, uh, which is what we're debating in the abortion issue, or that you're removing them from needed life support and putting them in a situation in which they can't survive. And in that case, it would have been wrong for Shemp to start giving McFall bone marrow, but to stop giving him the bone marrow before McFall reaches the point where he's able to survive. So what, w- what would your response to, to Boone in there be? No, I, I don't think that that's correct. Uh, first, uh, the idea of killing versus letting die you don't have to talk about whether the person has a right to the support in the first place because you could have killing uh, that's just or unjust. If I shoot an intruder in my home, I've mm. killed him. Uh, but I, 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 but he, that doesn't follow from there that, you know, he had a right to be in my home or, or things like that, that you can have killing that's just and killing that's unjust. So I have an intruder comes into my home. 
Uh, you don't even have to have the question about whether they have a right to exist or not. If I shoot the person who comes into my home, whether it's benevolent or malevolent, just, you know, it's actually my wife coming home, God forbid. Mm. If I shoot oh, right. them, um, I've killed them. But if they're, break if they're coming into my home and they've fallen into the swimming pool and they're drowning and I choose to not reach in and pull them up, I'm letting them die. So mm -hmm. here it seems to me the question is not about right to use support or, or things like that. It's rather is the person in a healthy operating state or has a fatal sequence of events been initiated that I'm interrupting? And I think it's clear that in the case of McFalver, in the case of organ donation, a fatal sequence of events emerges when the person has the condition, my kidney has failed, my bone marrow has failed, and it is that has initiated events that can be traced back that will cause my imminent death unless someone intervenes to, to save me, basically. Uh, but in abortion, the, the child is not on their way to dying. Uh, the child is healthy and developing normally. And when they are aborted, it is the abortion that kills them. Because think about this. Uh, when I choose to not give Shemp or whoever my kidney, they're not dead when I make, when I, when I make that act. If I go into the hospital and I say, I am not giving you my organ, they, they're not going to drop dead from that, from that action. Right. Rather, they're going to die as they're, you know, when their body is no longer able to, to, to process uh, nutrients and, and things like that. It's going to be this condition that kills them that I chose to not save them from. Uh, and so I think that that's a, a clear difference. And I think in the debate, I, I summarized this in a, um, a soundbite, which is just, look, in the case of or refusing to donate in organ donation cases, if you do nothing, somebody's going to die. To me, that's letting die or failing to save. In abortion, if the woman does nothing, the child's going to live. So it seems to me she has to initiate the fatal sequence of events. And to me, that falls under killing, not letting die. And, and that proves to be a serious disanalogy to the cases. Because if I don't donate my kidney to someone who's dying, or even let's say you say, well, you're giving your bone marrow, McFall gives it to Shemp, and then he says, I'm not going to donate anymore. He hasn't made Shemp worse off. He hasn't killed Shemp. He's just returned Shemp to his previous dying condition. But with abortion, if a woman has an abortion, she doesn't return the fetus to some kind of previous non-existent state. A healthy living child dies. So to me, I think those are, they're, they're, they're very different. And I don't think the objections to the killing versus letting die objections succeed. Right. And that's actually one of the dis disanalogies between the violinist case and pregnancy also is that uh, why it might be permissible to unplug from the violinist but not to have an abortion is because when you unplug from the violinist, uh, you're, you're not the active agent in that person's death. He's dying from the kidney ailment, whereas in abortion, you're actually the active agent in killing the, the uh, unborn embryo or fetus, whether by uh, dismemberment or uh, or by removing it from the environment which it can sur survive or any of these. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think what's interesting is in the debate, I think David brought this up. He said in the cross we were talking back and forth, he said, it seems to you you're really hung up on killing, letting die, that the embryo is healthy, the baby is healthy. And I said, well, yeah, in most cases, letting die deals with unhealthy people or it deals with somebody who is dying or a fatal sequence of events has been initiated and you don't save them. Uh, so to me, I, I think that's a, that's a key difference there between whether, you know, if you, you know, push the astronaut out of the ship or not, or you choose to not reel him in, 
but obviously the question of the ethics of killing versus letting die can become complicated. But I do think in these cases it shows a severe disanalogy for the Thompson Boonin thesis, as I might call it. And so you also um, you also gave the thought experiment, which which I thought was was really good, of being up in an airplane. And so uh, you know if you're if you're the pilot in an airplane, you're you're basically responsible for the lives of all the people on your plane. That you, you can't just uh, jump out and say okay, good luck, because you're you're not. Uh, abiding by the obligation you have to get those people there, uh, there safely, and I, I thought that was kind of a, I thought that was a good analogy to, to show that as well. Oh yeah, because I mean, Boonin has used I've heard him use this analogy in other debates, and he may have alluded to it in our debate. He says, well, you know, just because let's say a, a pregnant woman gives her baby life on Thursday, it doesn't mean she has to keep giving him life on Friday. Just because I give you life yesterday doesn't mean I have to keep giving you life through pregnancy tomorrow. Much the same as if I give you a gift card to Amazon or I give you money on Thursday, it doesn't follow that because I gave you money in the past that I have to keep giving you money in the future. But the point of of that responsibility in the airplane example uh, is to show that, no, sometimes when you provide something to people in the past, you do incur an obligation to continue that provision. Like in the case of providing money, that is, uh, you know, a, a super erogatory. That is a gift that benefits the person. Uh, it doesn't keep them from grave harm. And so, you're, you're, you know, it's a gift. It's a beneficial gift. You don't have to keep giving it. Uh, but in the case of life, that's more like the airplane case. What if the pilot said, well, just because I flew this plane an hour ago for you people, uh, it doesn't mean that I have to keep flying this plane for all of you, uh, you know, and, and other, other things like that. Well, yes, it does, because you are the reason these people are dependent on you. And so because you have caused them to be in this needy condition, 30,000 feet in the air, uh, you have a responsibility to bring them to safety. And that would take us back to the, um, uh, what do you call it? back back to where the responsibility objection, I think, really shows the disanalogies here in the basically every case a pro-choice person would bring up. Right. In the course of your debate, was there, was there anything that you kind of left up in the air that you wish you would have been able to address a little more fully or, or did, did you feel you would, you addressed everything uh, adequately? Well, I feel like I, I show that the pro-life position uh, succeeds and, I, and that the bodily rights argument does not justify the pro-choice position. I, I think that was demonstrated clearly in the debate. But as with any debate, there are hosts of issues that get brought up. You wish you had more time you could go into. I would have loved mm-hmm. to talk more about womb teleology, for example, uh, but I wanted yeah. to focus on that responsibility objection because I think that's the, the crux. And when that one goes, I really think almost nearly all of the Boone and Thompson thesis, or sorry, Thompson Boone thesis mm. goes with it, really. Uh, I'd love, I would love to talk more about that. Also, another point that was uh, difficult was during the Q&A period. Because of mm. the way of Q&A, a person would ask me, you would ask a question to a debater. They can respond, and their opponent is given 30 seconds to reply. And right. this debate actually was one of the most uh, frustrating for me of any I've done, and I've always done this format, uh, what happens is, and I think Boonin was frustrated too sometimes, you know, you, you get asked a question, your opponent makes a reply to that, and you really want to reply to his reply. 
right, and say, well, yeah. wait a minute, hold, hold on a minute. Uh, there were multiple mm-hmm. times I wanted to do that about the legality of abortion, back alley abortion, um, things like that. I would have loved to have talked, you know, that he would give a reply, and I'd say, well, hold, hold on a minute. And I think the same <laughs> thing happened to him as well. So he and I talked after yeah. the debate about how nice it would be maybe to do another event like this, but it would be yeah. more of a dialogue. We'd have a moderator, and we'd just talk about things back and forth, just different mm-hmm. subjects that um, that would come up and you know go back yeah. and forth on that. So, I mean, right. I, I think that, that was just, you know, the nature of debates and how they go. But overall, yeah. I, I still felt the pro-life position was, was presented well. Now, uh, I, I don't have much experience debating. I've been involved in a couple, but don't they sometimes resolve that issue by having another another time of rebuttal after the uh, cross-examination or after the – well, I guess maybe not after the – I don't think I've ever seen it after the, uh, the Q&A. But I've never seen, it, after, I've like, never seen it after right? Q&A. Yeah, okay. no, normally you just do closing statements, and it's good in your closing statement just to hammer home your main point, mm-hmm. tie up a okay. very important loose end if you need mm-hmm. to. Um, yeah. But, I mean, that's just the hard – I mean, that's just the nature of, of Q&A. And the idea of it being fair yeah. is, well, you each get to have, be frustrated equally, and um, which is <laughs> right. hard, though, if you – and I, I sense this more at Stanford, and this happens to me in a lot of debates, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. My opponent will get kind of easy questions, and I get more antagonistic or difficult ones. <laughs> uh, for example, when I debated Malcolm Potts at Berkeley – Nobody wanted to ask Malcolm Potts any questions because they all agreed with him. They just wanted to, mm. to go after me, basically. So, yeah. I mean, that's where, you know, that's where it, where it kind of becomes difficult with Q&A format. But I love having audience Q&A involved. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how to – it's something I guess you have to have to, have to put up with. Yeah. Now, how did, uh, how did Malcolm Potts – I mean, how, how was his general demeanor – uh, during his debate with you, because uh, I've seen him debate uh, Scott Klusendorf once, and he was pretty rude throughout most of it. Did, was he kind of the same with you, or was he a little yeah, cantan- better Yeah, I call him cantankerous. Oh, oh. yeah, he was uh, – <laughs> okay. yeah, I, I, I found him to be a very unpleasant uh, individual. Yeah. I think he came around a little lighter in our second debate, but yeah, okay. yeah I, I – I, considered a lot of his debate behavior to be somewhat rude trying to and i mean it was interesting because it was a very friendly audience for him it was a slam dunk it's all his students that already like him and agree with him uh but he right. was being very frustrated he got really frustrated same as what scott did to him as i did as well citing his own work against him basically and then really yeah. and I, I in the second debate i just felt bad for him because the second debate i mean he did the exact same thing in the first and he didn't change anything and I was completely prepared for that, you know, because I knew exactly now what he would say. And he, like nearly everybody who debates me on subjects, mm-hmm. whether it's pro-life or anything else, don't bother to research my position. They don't read. Mm-hmm. I did a debate on atheism in Australia, and the guy came out and said, oh, that must be your book on atheism. I'm like, you didn't read it? We just debated <laughs> the existence of God. You didn't read my book? And mm-hmm. needless to say, you can watch that. It, it, it didn't go well for my opponent. Um, so yeah, I did not uh, particularly enjoy debating Malcolm Potts, um, but I really enjoyed debating David Boone and I, I have a higher level of respect for him and I thoroughly yeah. enjoy doing another, um, dialogue or, or debate with him on the subject. Well, good, good. Yeah. Uh, cause I, I've read his book, uh, a defense of abortion also, and I was kind of surprised, uh, although maybe I shouldn't be because, uh, I mean, you know, Boone is a, a smart guy and, you know, he knows what he's doing in his debate, but, uh, cause I, I, I expected him to argue, maybe not focus exclusively on the personhood thing, but at least talk more about it, because it seemed like a major point in his book was that 
uh, you're not seriously harming the fetus by aborting it before it has desires, before its cortical brain activity is going. And so it seems that at, at least he should be able to argue for most abortions from cortical brain activity, if not McFalvey Shemp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think the reason um, he did that, and I heard him talking to people afterwards, is I think he believes people have a better time wrapping their head around his bodily rights argument. And so he just tries to make mm-hmm. it simple for the audience and zero in on it. Uh, okay. And what's funny is, I mean, I, I knew he was going to do that, that he was just going to do a bodily rights case. And so mm-hmm. I debated myself, you know, I was wondering, well, should I (laughs) craft an opening statement that is purely focused on rebutting a bodily rights argument? So it would put me ahead, but I felt, no, I want to build a solid general case for the pro-life position. And also, because I didn't know how many Stanford people would actually be there. It was a smaller crowd, but still a fair number of people. uh, That I know most people, it's those classic philosophical, they're not human, not a person arguments and so I felt that whenever I present the polite position, I have to address those arguments, even if my opponent doesn't, because that's premise two in my argument. Say, well, I'll make this. And, and I did address some things in Boonin's book to keep it relevant to the debate. Uh, right. But I think that he wanted to try to just keep a very simple, narrow focus on an argument he thought is successful. And there is a merit to doing that. I, I understand his, his approach in that. And people yeah. have different strategies in how they approach it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, it was definitely an effective uh, opening argument. If you weren't there to to rebut it, I can see how it would have been convincing to a lot of people. Uh, so you mentioned a little bit about how you uh, about uh, debating yourself before going out to debate uh, Boonin. What what was what, what really went into your preparation for preparing to debate Boonin? Sure, and the the preparation I do for debates. I mean, I really enjoy them, and they're the key, especially for pro life advocates who are listening who want to go out and do debates. And, and I want to see more pro-lifers out there doing debates against skilled opponents. It's important for people mm-hmm. to see our position withstands critical attack and, and scrutiny. Um, so what I do is, um, well, I mean, I will create an opening statement. Um, usually for abortion, my opening statements are very similar. Sometimes I'll tailor them for certain opponents based on how I know a point they're going to bring up a lot. Um, I did that for POTS on back alley abortion and for Boonin, I mentioned bodily rights and, and his personhood arguments. So I, I usually create my opening statement first where I want the argument to go. And then I'm going to research and then I look at my opening statement, my arguments, list them and think, how is this person going to reply to my argument? Now, sometimes I have no idea how they're going to reply because I've never heard of them before or they're not published and I have to go by the skin of my teeth. So, of course, with David Boonin, I could study what did he write in his book and how in his previous debates with Peter Kraft and Patrick Lee did he argue in those live debates. And so when watching that, I can study to say, okay, here's how he replies to, um, to these arguments. And then uh, I can uh, prep my rebuttals and say, okay, I'll have these. Uh, and, so, and many of my rebuttals oftentimes in debates are pre-written uh, because – the key in debates, honestly, the more, you, the more prepared you are, the better you will come out. The worst thing you can do in a debate is speak extemporaneously or off the top of your head. Because most mm. people are – no one's amazing at it. It's a hard thing to do. The, the more prepared you are, the better. So the idea is just, okay, here's where Professor Boone's probably going to argue. 
Uh, here's some rebuttals I can have as, as per I need them. And then just follow that strategy through. Of course, things get thrown at you that you're not, you know, aware of or didn't see coming. So you have to think on your feet quickly. But that's the general strategy I usually take both in that debate and just in debates in general. Yeah. And if you familiarize yourself with the, with the material that, uh, that your debate opponent has written, such as in Boonin's case, his book, A Defense of Abortion, then it's a lot easier to anticipate where they're going to go. So it's a lot easier to be able to write your rebuttal in advance. I would imagine. Oh yeah, and people who people who do debate me should do that. I would be. It's funny. Some people don't like seeing their work quoted on a screen or something like that. But I would be like, hey, they read my book. Good. Let's yeah. talk about it. Because then we can get into. Because it's like, look, my knowledge on this subject is not completely contained in this book. So if you want right. to talk about it, then we can even go deeper on stuff I've not been able to bring up in my publications or in my public talks or. Or things like that. Yeah, it reminds me when you were talking about how uh, your atheist uh, debater didn't read your book. It reminds me of uh, a bit of uh, William Lane Craig, who's a phenomenal debater, brilliant philosopher. But you know, one of the reasons he he's won almost all the debates he's ever had. I mean, you know, he's a brilliant guy, and, and he always, he has uh, really good arguments too. But a lot, but most of the time, the the atheists who go and debate them just don't familiarize themselves with with their work. They seem to think that atheism is just so self evident that they don't even have to prepare for the debate. That they can just go in there, argue, and people will just kind of fall on their knees and and realize how true atheism is. That's kind of the impression oh, that I get. It's from, an incredible um, I've seen among atheists who debate an incredible amount of hubris, and every every atheist I've debated. I think has shown this resistance to wanting to read my work. My very first big public debate with Catholic Answers was with Dan Barker on the existence mm. of God. And I don't think he read my yeah. book, frankly. I don't think he read it. He gave his same stump debate speeches. So much so, I knew what he was going to do, that midway through the debate, he was referencing a particular book written by an atheist named Victor Stanger. Oh, this book refutes what Trent's saying, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> So then when I got up to speak, I pulled that book out from the podium and said, oh, you mean this book? Let me tell you what's wrong with it. Uh, right. and, and so it's like, it's like I go through this effort. I want to learn your position and see what you're going to say. It, is, right. it does really amaze me. Most people that I, I debate uh, won't do the same for my position, and t- they do that to their own peril. Mm, right. Yeah, because you, you come off as the knowledgeable one, and they come off as, uh, as less than um, you know, not, not really knowing much about what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. The same thing's kind of happened, and I know we, we – I don't know. We, we not have different theological – this is funny. I mean, I debate abortion, do pro-life, but I also debate Catholic theology, of course. And I think that – I mean, it was interesting to see that in my debate with uh, James White on the subject of eternal security, uh, that I tried the same there to be prepared. And, um, you know, and so you're – there's another fun debate to watch to see how two people – because White is a very skilled, uh, intelligent man, very good debater. Uh, but I think right. he was not happy that, like, in my rebuttals, I had actually full PowerPoint slides ready for the material I knew he was going to cover. And that's just another testament that when you do debates, preparation is key. Yeah, and, you know, I am a, a Protestant myself, but I'm not Reformed. And so I did mm-hmm. watch your debate with, with James White, but I actually uh, – I'm actually closer to your position uh, on mm-hmm. eternal security than I am to James White's. So most Christians yeah, are. So, yeah, right. So uh, yeah, so even though even though you know I'm, I'm coming from a different uh, uh, faith tradition, theological background, uh, I, yeah. theological background, right? I, I still am closer to you uh, on the uh, on the resolution of your debate than I was to, to White. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay, so we're actually uh, coming up to the end here of our of our time together. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, I would recommend they go to my website, trenthorn.com, so they can go there um, to check that out. Uh, Also, Mm -hmm. catholic.com and search my name. You can see my debates, other things like that. So Mm trenthorn.com, you can learn more about my books, and uh, you can get Persuasive Pro-Life. It's available on uh, amazon.com, online book retailers, or shop.catholic.com. But just search Persuasive Pro-Life. Your your listeners can find Mm -hmm. it. Also, if you have any, uh, any listeners, especially any Catholic listeners, I'm going to be leading a pilgrimage to the Holy Land next Easter. Uh, very exciting. If you want to learn more about that, uh, go to holyland2018.com. That's holyland2018.com. But otherwise, my personal website would be a good place to go. Great. Are there any other, uh, well, we talked about persuasive pro-life. Uh, are there any other books in particular you'd, you'd specifically like to, to mention that, Someone might like to, to check out. Or, or on uh, any topic. On the sub- just just well, in general, any, any, any books you'd like you to can't, yeah. You can't go wrong with my books. I have my book, Answering Atheism, my first book I wrote. I have a book on Bible difficulties from a Catholic perspective called Hard Sayings. Uh, uh, and I also have my, my newest book is called Why We're Catholic. And that's just an explanation of why... Catholics believe what they do and the reasons behind it. And I really wrote it for my Protestant and atheist, my non-Catholic friends. Here's a book written in a respectful tone. Read it and, and take from it what you will, you know. Um, so there's those books. Um, on the subject of abortion, if your listeners want to really dive deeper into this, uh, I would recommend, obviously, a Persuasive Pro-Life is a good book on this subject. Um, others from both philosophers and pro-life apologists, I recommend, I recommend, of course, Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life. My colleague Stephanie Gray has a nice little book. I love the way she approaches this issue called Love Unleashes Life. So those yeah, are some popular um, treatments I recommend. Yeah, I've actually booked uh, yeah. Stephanie to come on and talk about her book next month. So uh, that's something to look forward oh, great. to. Yeah. Yeah, she's, oh yeah, she's a um, good ally in the trenches. Also, Definitely. Um, for philosophy, Probably my favorite, there's a nice little collection of books on this subject, but I would recommend if your listeners want to go deeper into the philosophy of this issue, I like Frank Beckwith's book, Defending Life, the second edition of Patrick Lee's book, Abortion and Human Life, or I think it's Abortion and Unborn Human Life, and um, Chris Kazor's book, The Ethics of Abortion, Uh, and those are nice treatments on this. So I'm hoping in the near future, or maybe in, I don't know, five years, who knows, I'd love to write an academic treatment uh, just on the rights of the unborn in general, which would include abortion and other issues. So who knows right. will come from that. Yeah. Well, uh, I will definitely uh, look forward to that if that, if that uh, project comes to fruition. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but yeah, so lots of writing and uh, hopefully I'll do more uh, debates and um, you know, I'd lo- I'm always, if your listeners would ever like to, book me to do a debate at their uh, community or at their uh, university, just go to my website, trendhorn.com and click the contact page and I'll be happy to uh, check that out. Great. So uh, thank you, the audience for listening. I hope you enjoyed uh, the interview. Uh, It it will be up on blog talk radio up on our website so that you you can listen to it later so that you can uh, send friends or family members or even your enemies to, uh, to check it out. 
Um, if, if you if you enjoy this podcast, what we're doing here, we encourage you to share it and to uh, rate it and review it. And of course, of, of course, check out Trent's work as well. But remember that this is also a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week. On top of all the other uh, work that I do for the the pro life movement, as uh, Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full time to save them. So I subsist off of uh, donations from from generous financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com and click on donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. So once again, I really appreciate you listening. Uh, next week, my, uh, my co-host, Nathan and Aaron will be back with me, and we're going to be talking about the science of embryology, how we make the scientific case for humanity beginning at fertilization. So uh, we hope to see you again, and have a great week. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.